The views, ideas, and content of well seekers and their guests are their own opinions, and you should always seek additional professional help around any of the issues discussed here on Well Seekers. Hello, and welcome to Well Seekers, where we are helping you rise and come back to find your story of well, starting from the mind down, a holistic approach to mental and emotional health. I'm Lucia. I'm so excited to be with you this week as we continue our series on eating-related issues and eating disorders. We have Michelle Felton, who was on last week, coming back to talk about adolescence and eating disorders. Now, this is a topic where we've had um, listeners write in, so thanks to everyone who has contacted us about stories and solutions that they want to hear talked about on Well Seekers, and this is one of them. Just some general stats I know we've went over before, but if this is your first time tuning into the show, we've spent the last six weeks talking about eating disorders and eating related issues in in everyone, really. But these shows, the last two shows, specifically focusing last week on athletes and this week on adolescents. Now, one of the reasons that eating disorder conversations and food-related issues are so important and vital is that eating disorders are actually the number one leading cause of death among all mental illnesses. And it's not something that's talked about frequently for a variety of reasons, one of them being, I believe, stigma. There's just so much misinformation around eating disorders as well um, and eating-related issues. One of the reasons that we're doing this show today in particular is prevention and early intervention matters so much with eating disorders. So if you have a child, we see eating disorders coming up in six-year-olds now, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and of course, what we could typically have considered adolescents as well. If you have a child and you want to know some of the signs and symptoms that may be happening, if you want to understand how to better approach your child, if you think that they have some concerns about body image that may lead to food issues or they have food issues, um, we're going to be talking about all of that on today's show, as well as treatment options if you know that your child has an eating disorder and they are an adolescent. Now, we know that eating disorders affect all races and ethnic groups, genetics, environmental factors, personalities can combine and create a risk for eating disorder. Adolescents, there has been an increase over the years among eating disorders within that population. Now, depending on whose research you study, there's a variety of contributing factors. We see adolescents starting earlier. Puberty is happening at a younger age. If you're someone who goes through puberty before other people in your class, it can affect your body image and your self-esteem, all risk factors that put you at risk for eating-related issues or an eating disorder. Some other factors, social media. It's one thing to compare yourself to celebrities and models, but when you're constantly looking at images of people that are supposedly your peers, even though those images are most frequently altered or have a filter on them, um, or we're only sharing the best moments in time, Brains don't compute that, especially at that age. So it puts you at a greater risk and increased risk of feeling some of the comparisons that happen to a greater degree, putting more focus on your body and your image. Again, all things that can lead to eating related issues. There's a website I really enjoy called The Healthy Teen Project. It's a place for adolescent eating disorder recovery. Now, the data around eating disorder recovery from The Healthy Teen Project was astounding to me. It talked about how 95% of those with eating disorders are between the ages of 12 and 25. Now, that's a stat that you will see fluctuate a lot depending on reports and research studies. 40 to 60% of elementary school girls, I just couldn't believe this, ages 6 to 12 are concerned about their weight. 
And that's something that has changed and augmented over the years. High school students, 44% of females and 15% of males have attempted to lose weight at some point in time. Now, here's another interesting stat that I found. 35% of normal dieters, quote unquote normal dieters, end up progressing on to something that could be pathological dieting. Um, of those, 20 to 25% progress to partial or full-blown eating disorder. For adolescent populations, because of different things like social media, like we chatted about, um, many teenagers report that bullying and comments about their weight and body have increased over time because of social media. Um, I know that growing up, I was bullied for the one or two years that I was heavier and going through puberty and different things that children normally go through in human development. I faced bullies because my weight fluctuated so significantly for those first two years that there were changes in my body. And that was something that stuck with me and absolutely contributed to my eating related issues. So because people are on social media, they've opened themselves up to even more bullying and potential to be harassed for the way that they look physically. So that could be another factor in the increase among adolescents and eating disorders. Also something that wasn't talked about when I was growing up, but binge eating also in this category. So anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorders are all within the context of what we're talking about today. I think the most important thing to know is that there's hope, right? There is recovery from these eating disorders. There is treatment options available. But even more interesting and hopeful to me is this can be stopped. So if there's early intervention, even if your child has signs or symptoms, it doesn't mean it needs to go into a partial or full-blown eating disorder. There's early intervention methods that can course correct some of the symptoms that you may be seeing. And that's really what today's show is all about, is talking about those um, and having our guest explain how if you have a child that maybe is showing some symptoms, how we can intervene. And again, if you don't know what the symptoms are, how you can spot those symptoms. And then if you do have a child who you know has a full-blown eating disorder, treatment options. And again, we have some adolescents listening. So thanks to everyone that listens. If you're listening for yourself, we hope that you get something out of our next guest. I'm sure you will. She was on last week and she's back again so graciously with us this week. Her name's Michelle Felton. She is a licensed mental health clinician and a CEDS, a certified eating disorder specialist. She is clinical director of Laurel Hill, which is in Medford, Massachusetts, and also has a private practice. And she knows a tremendous amount about adolescents and eating disorders. And she will be with us in just a moment right here on WellSeekers. After a long day, taking time to love yourself and your friends and your family more well can be a challenge. We're so burnt out and exhausted and stressed from working so hard during the day, we forget to love the people and the places and the things that are important to us. Well, Lucia Knight is here to help. We're gonna be a retreat and a treat for your day. A place to laugh, to connect, and to learn to love yourself and others more well. We're gonna talk about relationships, ways to sleep better. We'll have expert guests, personal stories, maybe even a musical guest or two. We'll share behind the scenes into my own life as well, my friends, my family, and of course, my relationships. So close the door on your day and light up your night with Lucia at night. Also, make sure to check out more at wellseekers.com for simple and real life ways to bring wellness home. I'll see you tonight on Lucia at Night.
You're listening to Wellseekers, a show where the journey is just as important as the destination. And we're back on Wellseekers with our guest who we are welcoming back for a second week, Michelle Felton. Michelle is clinical director at Laurel Hill in Medford, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston. She's an LMHC and a CEDS. Michelle, thank you so much for being back on the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? And thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I've, our conversation, I feel like we could do a six-part series just with you because you're a wealth <laughs> of knowledge. And there are some variables. There are some differences in populations when it comes to eating-related issues and eating disorders. To have you back to talk about adolescence is something that I know our audience wants to hear about because the majority of our audience are moms or may hope to be a mom someday. So the adolescent population. Can you just define that? Yeah. Um, so actually the adolescent population, um, we see adolescents, I mean, we've had adolescents as young as six. When I've been throughout my places I've worked in treatment, we've seen them pretty young. But typically when you think of an adolescent struggling with an eating disorder, usually it's actually now between the ages of like 10 and 17. Obviously 17, 18, you're going into adulthood. And so I think it's trying to think about what you need for treatment so that individual specifically rather than like first what you would need for a 12 year old. So let's talk a little bit about that because before you were on, I was just going over some statistics about the rise of eating disorders in adolescence Mm -hmm. and how young traits are showing up, especially in girls. You may not know this from a research perspective, but from your own experience, what do you think that is contributed to? I think, you know, with, um, and we talked a little bit about this last week, I hate to always blame just the media, but, you know, with the rise of social media, younger kids having access to the internet, Instagram, I'm sure there's other forms of social media besides Snapchat that like kids use these days. I'm not as well versed in, but it's so much easier to compare. And a lot of the marketing about diets um, and the diet culture is marketed towards children mm. or towards younger people. And so I think that's part of the thing that they're really seeing. And I think with pictures being more put out to the public, you know, a long many years ago, we took pictures, they got developed at CVS or Walgreens <laughs> and they were just kept in your family's house, right? Yeah. Whereas like now these pictures are being taken, they're being filtered, they're being edited and they're being put on the internet. And it's, you're so much likely to more compare to your friends when that happens, especially if you're a young kid who like your friend group is kind of where you get your confidence from. Previous conversations I've had on this show where we've chatted about it's almost worse. And I have a background in media and a background in mental health. (laughs) And it's almost worse now because you're comparing yourself to a real person as opposed to there was some disconnect, like this is a celebrity or this is a model. So of course, there is a little bit of you know, that notion of, of course, I'm not going to be like this celebrity or this model that tamps it down a little bit comparison wise. But when it's the girl that sits next to you in history class, or even from my perspective, friends of mine, I just see pictures and I'm like, why do I not fill in the blank? Right. So Mm -hmm. your mind goes there more. And something that people actually don't necessarily think about is with kind of this electronic footprint, it's also easier for people to compare themselves let's say you're 16 but then like what you looked like when you were 14 mm. you know and so a lot of self-comparison happens there too where somebody might notice I look different in x way since I was 14 years old and to most of us we would think yes you should look different than when you were 14 15 however if you're like 
appearance is changing or your weight is shifting in one way, they're going to be very self-conscious about that sometimes. You think potentially diet culture, potentially social media has changed that. What about the fact that adolescence is hitting earlier than before? Does that have anything to do with it? We do see, um, you know, when I was working with just adolescents, we did see a lot of them who had gone through puberty earlier. And, you know, the younger you go through puberty, the less prepared you are for it as well. You know, the emotional changes that come with it, but as well as the physical changes. And if you're 12 years old and you're developing and that's way ahead of your class, like you are so aware of what's happening with your body and you don't want to be different. At those ages, you do not want to be the person in your class who looks different. Absolutely. I was going to say you want to try to control it in some way when there's no controlling Mm -hmm. that, that change. If we have parents listening or maybe we have adolescents listening, it's definitely part of our um, audience demographics. What would mm-hmm. you say are some signs and symptoms to look out for? So I think the biggest that I've heard directly from families when they come into treatment is when this first started, my adolescent was really interested in family meals and they started cooking more for the family or they started cooking more for themselves or then they changed the way the family was eating. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big red flag. You know, you shouldn't have a 14, 15 year old changing the way your family's eating. They shouldn't be kind of making initiative to quote unquote eat healthier, or they shouldn't be like, I'll cook dinner tonight. And that's really what it became for a lot of families is the adolescent then cooking dinner for the entire family because it was their way of controlling the food. Mm. So that's a pretty big red flag, which is, you know, interesting because I think if you're a parent and your child is offering to cook dinner for the family, you're probably pretty happy about this. Right. You know, exactly. and you're kind of thinking, oh, how cool, like they're taking an interest in this, but you know, it be careful and kind of watch it because it can be a red flag. Talking about themselves and the things they eat in terms of like, oh, I shouldn't eat that or I should eat this. The language there is really important because foods don't have a should or a shouldn't. Right. So that's, you know, placing judgments on food, which is a huge thing to be really be looking out for. And then really too, just how they talk about themselves. Has that changed? You know, are they making more body comments? Are they saying so-and-so is bigger than me? So-and-so is smaller than me. I used to be so much smaller when I was this age. Um, just like listening to the way they talk mm-hmm. um, is really important. And something too, so teenagers don't have the education around nutrition that adults have and adults can't even do it. You know what I mean? Like we kind of change the ideas we have around nutrition to fit our own beliefs anyway. So an adolescent who has none of this really kind of goes into an eating disorder with no knowledge. So they'll just kind of take away major food groups or meals because that's how they think they should diet or they can lose weight by just skipping things altogether. So that's something that you'll notice right away as well. Let's say, for example, we've spotted some of these in our children should we have a conversation? Should we be monitoring it? What is the next step? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think, you know, the conversation out the gate, because a lot of times I think people are really afraid to say anything because they're afraid if they say something, it's going to maybe create an idea or spark an interest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because something I hear really often from parents is the worry about sending an adolescent into treatment, mm-hmm. because what if they pick up more behaviors? But it's something I can always reassure parents is, there's nothing they don't know because of the internet. <laughs> it you is know? So, so true. That is so true. If you think about it, yeah, if you think about it 20 years ago, you couldn't just Google like bulimia, binge eating disorder, anorexia. That wasn't a thing. So 
But now, you know, there's websites for pro-eating disorder websites and tips of the trade, you know, all those things that kids can just find at their disposal. So I think that having a conversation and just kind of saying, hey, I noticed you've been making a lot of comments about your body. Is that like, how are you doing? Do you, everything okay? How come you say that? Or why do you think that? Or I've noticed that you used to really like X, like food, but you don't eat it anymore. How come? And just like starting the conversation about it. And I think some actual signs, you know, that are helpful to look for too is to kind of cover, you know, not just anorexia. Obviously, if you have a child who's restricting, they may not necessarily lose weight, but if you go to your yearly appointment and they've grown and not gained weight, that is worse than losing weight. Because if you're gaining, if you're growing, you need to be gaining weight to make up for that. You know, we're talking about food, but I think one of the indicators, of course, is comments about body size, um, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I've had a few friends with daughters, especially, um, as young as six, commenting on, oh, well, so-and-so is um, heavier than me or so-and-so is thinner than me. And so-and-so said I was so thin and I should be so happy that I'm this thin. And I was blown away that first graders are talking about body size and different issues like that. If a child does express that but but doesn't have some of the eating situations that you described or traits, is that a conversation too? And what if it doesn't go away? When do you say, okay, we need to intervene here with a next step? That's, I mean, if a six-year-old or seven-year-old said, my friend told me I was really thin and I'm so lucky. I'm just talking about what, when you, like, what does that mean for you? Like, do you feel lucky that you're thin or, and then see what they say. Cause a lot of people, if you don't have the idea, might be like, no, like, I don't really think of it that way. Cause you can say, you know, I would say like your body has nothing to do with your intelligence, what you know, who you are as a person, like your body is just your vessel that kind of like walks you around the world mm-hmm. and it's so hard with a six-year-old right because they're so young so that's really why you want to gauge like you know where they're at with that because you can say that to a, a 10-year-old okay so same with a 10-year-old or with an eight-year-old you could say what does that mean to you would it be the same approach yeah okay because they're still pretty young so it, you could go anywhere because I, I think sometimes we think things are things and they're not. Mm-hmm. So you could ask a six-year-old that and they might be like, I don't know why my friend said that. That was really weird. And then just move on, you know? And so that's why I kind of like seeing where they're at, where is then if you get the response of, I am really lucky. I hope I stay thin of taking the conversation a little bit further about your body is not your worth, obviously with different language than that with a six-year-old mm-hmm. saying like, well, you know, who you are as a person, the things that you like about your child, that you're funny or that, you know, I like when you like giggle at this, like has nothing to do with your body and kind of just taking away that direct connection to it. Right. I would say if you notice increased conversation around it or any kind of like shift in behavior, whether it be your child is suddenly more anxious or withdrawn or more depressed, send them to a therapist just immediately because a lot of times I get younger clients who have what we would call concern disordered eating and not a full-blown eating disorder. We try to make that distinction too or we had you know eating related issues versus and distorted eating versus an eating disorder. So there is mm-hmm. something to be said for catching it right? So taking that, having those conversations and getting help and intervention so that it doesn't turn into an eating disorder. I think that's the hardest thing is to know when, Mm -hmm. when to get help. My concern would be if I was a parent trying to place myself in those shoes, if I go and get help, 
is this going to make it worse? Is this going to help make them think I have an eating disorder when it may just be what you said, which is disordered thinking around food or body image? Yeah. And it doesn't even necessarily, it doesn't have to be framed as I'm taking you to the therapist because I think you have an eating disorder Okay, of saying, you know, you seemed really like overwhelmed and stressed out lately. So I'm bringing you to this person um, to talk. You know, this person's just for you. You can talk about what you're stressed out about or you've been spending a lot of time in your room alone lately. So I was a little worried. So I just want to take you to this person for you to speak to, just you. And so it doesn't have to be phrases that way because sometimes parents reach out to me and they don't even necessarily say why they want a therapist for their child. So sometimes it's nice to go into a session without the information. I start the same session, like a third session, the same way regardless of I know why they're there or not. Which is, tell me, like, in your words, why you think you're here today. Mm. And then can kind of get to it and let them talk about it on their own. And it's not going to come out in the first session, and that's okay. You know, sometimes then it comes out as, oh, my friends at school, like, I might just say, oh, like, so what do you do for school? Like, who do you eat lunch with? Right. And that's a kind of good way to get an intro. And they might say, my friends. And then I would say, well, what do you typically bring for lunch? And they might say what, and they might tell me, and then I say, well, do your, what do your friends typically bring for lunch? And, you know, that's just like information gathering in a very non-threatening way to kind of see what's going on there. I love that information gathering. So almost be a little investigator when yeah. you're talking. So if there are people listening and they know that their child has an eating disorder, not even just eating related issues, can you suggest steps for them to look into treatment? I know that there are treatment centers that specialize in adolescents, so that may be one thing Mm -hmm. to look for, but what process could you suggest for them? So a lot of people start with taking their child if they suspect they have an eating disorder to their primary care physician for medical to get, you know, labs done, vitals done, height and weight, Weight is always not always indicative of an eating disorder. So I think that's really important to say. And with that being said, if you don't have a PCP who's eating disorder informed, it can be missed. So if you do worry about it being missed, you could take your child to a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders. They'd be a good place to start. And, you know, that dietitian will most likely say if you don't have a therapist, you get a, you get a whole team on board. So there's Doctors who specialize in eating disorders, so adolescent medicine doctors who specialize in eating disorders, you want on the team, you'd want a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders on the team and a therapist who specializes in eating disorders on the team and probably a family therapist as well. Mm, Right, to incorporate the family into treatment. Yeah, because you really, you know, an adolescent shouldn't be doing eating disorder work alone. You should be having a whole, like, the family involved. It's so hard, too, to know how to support someone with an eating disorder. And I say that on Mm -hmm. someone who's had one, too. Um, Yeah. So that information, I think sometimes when families hear family counseling, they think that they're going to be blamed. I've heard that from families before. And Mm -hmm. that's not always the purpose is how can you get support in supporting this person? Yeah. And, you know, I think family therapy has a pretty big aversion, even with our clients who are 22 years old, because the family is still worried they're going to be blamed. Mm. But if your loved one is struggling with an eating disorder, this eating disorder impacts you and your entire family as well. So it's not about placing blame. It's about what's happening at the home or in the family system that's still like keeping the eating disorder going. And that's not blame. That's just about, you know, how to best support each other. And these are the signs that you should be looking out for because eating disorders, like we talked about last week, can be really sneaky. So people can be using behaviors under the same roof as their parents and like the parents have no idea. 
And that's not because they're bad parents. It's because these behaviors, they're trying to keep secret. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, before we let you go, I know we chatted about this a little bit. How did you get into this line of work? Usually there are personal stories involved. So if you don't feel comfortable sharing, we will totally respect that. But why eating disorders? Why did you decide to specialize in this field in particular? Yeah. So I actually had been a runner. I run track my whole life um, and I ran in college. And that's where I got my first exposure to eating disorders. And, you know, I was a psych major in undergrad, obviously. And so we started learning about it and we were learning about it then. It was very much thought of as ballerina, gymnast, and maybe endurance athletes. This was the disorder was only in those sports. Mm. You know, I went into college like pretty naive to eating disorders. And I think that being on a team and then knowing people personally in college, also on teams really kind of opened my eyes to it. And I have a passion for sport, you know, given that I've done it my whole life. And I just think it was such a unique population. I really just wanted to help and I wanted to understand. So I went on to get my master's. I started my master's in sports psych. Um, I did about a year of that before transferring transferring over to the counseling program, but I really found a way to try to use those two together. And I just think athletes, adolescents, you know, I really like those populations in particular. So I think they're such a unique population and you work with them in such different ways. And also no day is ever the same. And I just really think that bringing awareness is so helpful. And you know, being a runner, you can see like when your training increases, how sometimes it's hard to decrease it. And I don't struggle with an eating disorder. So, you know, I can sometimes speak to that in a, from a personal way of running and how addictive it can be in general. I love that. So there is some personal tie-in, even though it wasn't eating for you, eating disorder related for you, but you witnessed the effects of it in some capacity. Yeah. Yes. I definitely knew people personally affected. Michelle, any final advice or something that I didn't ask then left out that should have been asked if there is a parent out there that has a child that's struggling or maybe someone listening that is an adolescent that you would want to say to them with all your vast knowledge in this area? I would definitely say just don't be afraid to have a conversation. Fear is the biggest thing that I feel like keeps people from asking the question, but you're never going to plant the idea you're never going to make somebody start having an eating disorder. So if you see something that's off, you tr- like trust your gut and it probably is. Mm. And I think my advice to be, if you're an adolescent listening, is that you, it feels so isolating when you're in your eating disorder and you think that you are like the only person who's struggling this way, but you're not. And that odds are people around you have noticed behaviors and haven't said anything. So reach out, whether it's a friend, a parent, a teacher, a doctor or somebody and say something because you don't have to live that way. I think that that's such an important point to end on. You don't have to live that way. And so often when you're in an eating disorder, you think this is never going to get better. Yeah. But it is. And it can absolutely be something that you come to the other side on. And there is hope. There truly is hope. Michelle Felton, she's clinical director of Laurel Hill in Medford, Massachusetts. She also has a private practice. We will put a link. You can click on her name and link to her Psychology Today page um, to get in touch with her. Thank you so much for joining us on Well Seekers. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be right back on Well Seekers. 
Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless, and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast -coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico, plus text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones or bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. Thanks for being part of the Seekerhood. We couldn't do this without you. Now, back to the show. And we're back on Well Seekers. Thanks so much to our guest, Michelle Felton, back again. I just love Michelle. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed her as much as I did. She has so much knowledge. I thought I knew a lot about eating disorders, but Michelle... She's the new queen in my mind because she knows so much about so many varied populations. We actually have gotten questions before about adolescents from parents. So I hope that today's show helped someone out there listening that has a child that potentially is struggling um, or maybe you are struggling and it helped you. Before we go, I want to give you my tool of the week, and I'm going back old school here. Many of you may know that WellSeekers was actually developed because I wanted to share resources, access to information, but also access to products, really on the cutting edge of wellness that I was finding out about. One of the things that I found when I was doing research on self-care tools years and years ago was how just some basic items in your daily routine can be life-changing, which is why I developed something that if you go to, see, I even need to go on my website. If you go to wellseekers.com and you click on the back to basics box, this box is some of my absolute favorite um, self-care tools. So just to walk you through in case you don't want the box, but you want to know a little bit about the tools. One of my favorite things in there that I've been using this week, I'll just talk about that because you can also click on shop and then featured tools and, and link to Amazon and get this. But there's an aromatherapy oil. It's a citrus aromatherapy oil. You can get it on the featured tools or you can get it in the back to basics box, especially as we head towards winter. I don't want to say into winter because that'll scare people. Aromatherapy is something that I start to use more and more. For some reason in the summer, I tend to use room sprays more, like a beachy spray or something that's lavender because I have the windows open. But in the winter, because the windows in the Northeast are generally closed, um, I use a lot of essential oils. So this one that's in the Back to Basics box is a citrus aromatherapy. And this is definitely my featured tool of the week. Like I said, just click on Featured Tools Shop. It'll bring you to Amazon. And again, we don't endorse these products. It's just one I personally use. And if you want the whole kit, you can click on the Back to Basics box for a little bit of self-care delivered right to you. And it'll definitely set you and reset you back to basics. But I wanted to talk a little bit why about why citrus aromatherapy is so amazing. And there's actually an article that we have up on WellSeekers um, about why citrus aromatherapy is so amazing. So some of the citrus sense benefits, and I will also put a link to this blog so you can read more about it. It is a mood booster. So citrus oil works on your brain's chemicals and your hormones to improve your mood. I talk about this in the write-up. My favorite is lemon. Orange is my second runner-up, but orange is the one in the Back to Basics box. You can also Google lemon 
that's what I'm adding to my aromatherapy repertoire very soon. So I'll also put a link up when I finally find the perfect lemon aromatherapy. Um, Citrus aromatherapy also, it's an antioxidant even as an aromatherapy. So the oil contains antioxidant properties that can help neutralize free radicals and protect damage to your cells and your tissues and relieve stress, which ultimately helps with your immune system as it gets colder and darker and we all feel a little bit more run down. This can counteract that. It helps get rid of germs. It fights against pathogens that are in the air as a germ eliminator makes your home smell really good too. My room always smells good when I have citrus aromatherapy going and it helps boost your energy, especially this time of year. I need that energy boost. So that's why I was saying I start to switch to more aromatherapy, especially the citrus family. Citrus oils help boost you physically as well as mentally. So if you need a little lift in your day, check out citrus aromatherapy this week. I feel like tools are just so important and we're going to deep dive and find more for you as we work our way through every week here at Well Seekers. If you guys have any questions, make sure you send us a message. You can find us online at Wellseekers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're listening somewhere else like iHeartRadio. Shout out to everyone that listens on iHeart or Spotify or one of our many distributors. So thanks so much to everyone that listens there. And before we let you go, you may have heard a commercial for Lucia at Night, which launches this Thursday night. Um, Lucia at Night is a show dedicated to relationships, loving yourself and others well, not just relationships with a significant other, but also with family. It's about closing your door on the day and lighting up your night. Fun, informative, and helps you get connected. So make sure you check out our very first episode this Thursday. From everyone here at Well Seekers, thanks so much for helping us bring wellness into your home and helping us help you find your story of well. We're so grateful to have you. We know that you can spend your time in lots of places. So thanks for spending your time here with us. Until next week, we hope that you stay well and we'll talk to you on Well Seekers. How would you like to join the conversation? Email us anytime at hello at wellseekers.com.